Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to begin <clears throat> to read at verse 27. Matthew chapter 27, and this will be familiar to many of us. Matthew chapter 27, page 999 in a pew Bible, if you're reading along with us there. And this is God's word to us this morning. We thank God for it, and we need to hear these words. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus <coughs> into the planetarium, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him, Heal, King of the Jews. And they said, they spat on him. They took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. And then as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all of the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, labai sabanakni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine, vinegar, and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. And many women were there watching from a distance, and they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Jews, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And as evening approached, there came a man, 
a, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who he himself became a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Great. Let's uh, turn to those verses that we read earlier, Matthew chapter 27, page 999. This really well-known account of the death of Jesus. The other evening, I, I came into the house and the film Everest was on. I'm maybe sure some of you might know that. I watched a few minutes of it. Some of the, the, the views of that amazing mountain were, were absolutely breathtaking. Many aspects of it which just caused you to be struck afresh by its majesty. I remember particularly a scene in which those who got to the top uh, sort of queued up to put their finger on the very top of the mountain. And I went to look for a picture of that, and it turns out it's not like that at all, so don't believe everything you see in the movies. But, but it certainly was the most impressive bit just to, to reach the very pinnacle of this incredible mountain. We've been journeying through Matthew's gospel now for some time. Many parts of the story are very impressive. There are places where we get glimpses of Jesus' majesty and His wisdom and His power, His compassion. But there is a sense in which today we, we reach the top of the mountain because we come to this account of the, the cross, the very focus of Jesus' work. And what we see rightly as the pinnacle of what Jesus does is for Him, perhaps, the very deepest of valleys. Jesus said that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. It is here that He does that supremely. His life has been about the cross. Remember, He has uh, recently in, in the birth stories, we've been looking at the wise men bringing Him gifts that would speak about His eventual death. And here we see that prophetic gift, as it were, fulfilled. He has known that this day is coming. He's been warning His disciples that, uh, that He will be handed over to the authorities, and He walks into Jerusalem knowing that this is what He must do. What I want us to do today with, with this familiar story is to sort of step back from it a little and to, to look at, at a number of themes that emerge here, uh, themes that often uh, Matthew has already been building up to uh, in other parts of his gospel, but they become particularly clear as we look at them around the cross. Four of them, they're very simple, abandonment, judgment, victory, and transformation. Abandonment, first of all. Jesus has been beaten by some of those involved in the Sanhedrin. He's been scourged by Pilate's guards. He's been mocked and beaten by them. He's already in a terrible physical condition, and it was normal for those who were crucified to carry at least the crossbar. Often the, the uprights of the crosses were in place and kept in place, but they would carry the, the crossbar to uh, the site of crucifixion. Jesus was not physically able to do that clearly, but his, and He wasn't forced to do it because His executioners didn't want Him to die before He got there, nor did they want to carry it themselves. And so they, they grabbed someone from the crowd to do this. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that Matthew names him Simon of Cyrene, uh, Cyrene in North Africa. 
sometimes whenever the gospel writers do this, it's an indication that that person is either a witness that you can go and check out the story with or has become well-known in the early church. So it, it may be an indication that Simon eventually sees that Jesus really, although he carries the cross, that Jesus is really dying for such as him. But Matthew wants us to see something else. We have already heard the words of Jesus back in chapter 6, 24, as he speaks to his disciples. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So, in other words, to follow Jesus, Jesus was saying, meant to take up the cross, and yet here, when Jesus is taking up the cross, quite literally, He is alone. No faithful disciple steps out from the crowd to say, let me help you. A stranger has to be forced to fulfill that role. It's just underlining, Matthew underlining for us, that Jesus is going to the cross alone. He is abandoned by His followers. This is part of His suffering. Abandonment. Then there's mocking. Jesus is surrounded by those who mock Him, and and as they do so, they show the most profound misunderstanding of what Jesus is really doing. You see how those who pass by shake their heads? Uh, they're, They're deriding Him. Those who pass by hurled insults at Him. Verse 39, verse 41, in the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked Him. Uh, and then the robbers deride him as well. Now, later on, we know that one of them turns to Christ in faith, but Matthew underlines their initial joint opposition. And again, this derision is all part of Christ's suffering, but Matthew helps us to see how little they know and wants us to understand the great irony in what they are saying. So, you think of it, come down from the cross to prove that you're the Son of God. Well, for the sake of the world, we know that the very place that the Son of God needs to be is on the cross. He saved others, but He can't save Himself. Well, here's the very point of substitution. He cannot save Himself and others. He chooses to save others. He chooses to save us by sacrificing Himself. Let God rescue Him now if He wants Him. Well, God would not rescue Him because He wants us. You see, even those who are mocking Jesus cannot help but draw attention to what He is really doing. Mocking. Judgment. So much of what Matthew tells us here points to this great theme of judgment. The scene has been set by the whole of the Bible, isn't it? That sin demands death. It demands payment and judgment. And the very fact that Jesus is going to a cross, well, the cross represented a a cursed death. Paul picks that up later in, in Galatians when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Well, Jesus is going to be hung on a tree. And, and, and as Matthew tells us the story, if we were reading it for the first time, we might think, well, can it really be? Here is the, the spotless Lamb of God. It looks as if He's going to face a cursed death. Surely something will happen to stop that from taking place. But then there's the darkness. 
from midday until 3 p.m., there's a darkness over the land. It's a, a supernatural darkness. It's not a solar eclipse. It lasts for three hours. And it happens at the Passover, which is the time of a full moon. It's a full moon feast. So it's the wrong time for a solar eclipse. It, it's God saying something in nature. In the Old Testament, whenever the prophets spoke about judgment, the judgment of God, it was very often associated with darkness. So, for example, Amos says this, it will come about in that day, and he's speaking about the, the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. God is about to pour out his judgment. It's associated with darkness. Not only that, but, but Matthew's Jewish readers would know that in the Exodus, the plague that was taking place immediately prior to the Passover, and all of this was happening at the Passover feast, the plague that was happening immediately prior to the Passover was the plague of darkness. Next thing that happens after the plague of darkness is the, the death of the firstborn and, and the Passover. So, so Matthew is echoing the plague of darkness with judgment descending upon the Son of God. And of course, the question is, the great question is, why? Why Jesus? What has He done? Because all the way through the Gospels, He is shown to be innocent. He's perfect. He's spotless. Even Judas, who betrays Him, has second thoughts, and He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And in the Old Testament, these judgments that were accompanied by darkness all came against the enemies of God, the unrighteous. Why should this fall upon Jesus? And of course, we know the answer, don't we? God is saying that here on the cross, His own Son, His perfect Son, the Son of His love, is the one who is going to face this terror. One commentator puts it this way, the darkness meant judgment, the judgment of God upon our sins, His wrath, as it were, burning itself out into the very heart of Jesus, so that He, as our substitute, offered, suffered the most intense agony, indescribable woe, terrible isolation, or forsakenness. This judgment is underlined by the cry of Jesus from the cross. You see in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this has been a, a really difficult a cry to understand because we, we know perhaps that, that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. It helps us to realize that this is not a, a cry of desperation or despair or surprise. Psalm 22 ends with God vindicating His servant and, and the, the, the servant reigning over His enemies. And all of this Jesus has in mind when He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, it's not a cry of faithlessness so much as a cry of faith. As, as one person says, he, he trusts in God in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. He trusts in God that God will vindicate him. And of course, God is pleased with this trust. God is never more happy with His Son than when He was most angry with Him, as one person said. But it also describes His dreadful experience. It's as if Jesus is saying this in quoting this, I want to show you that I am experiencing the loss of the Father's faith, face and favor. I was there 
and I was under His hand, and I was His Son, and suddenly I lost all sense of His love, of His comforting favor, of His presence, of the assurance of victory, of joy, of hope, of peace. It was all withdrawn because I was a curse. I was sin. I was made the penalty for sin. It pleased the Lord to bruise me. I was bruised for your transgressions. I was put to grief. So, there's this dreadful isolation experienced by the Son of God. He's abandoned by His disciples, but He is isolated from His Father on the cross. He feels that. And He knows what it is not to be answered, doesn't He? That's what's happening in Psalm 22. The psalmist is crying out because God is not answering him. God does not come to the rescue of the psalmist at the beginning of the psalm. In so many situations, God does come to the rescue when His people cry on Him, but He doesn't when it comes to the rescue of His Son. His Son takes the full force of His anger against sin. It's hard for us to grasp how this can be. J.C. Riley, old Bishop of Liverpool says this, there's a deep mystery in these words which no mortal man can fathom. They were meant to express the real pressure on the soul of Jesus Christ of the enormous burden of the world's sins. They were meant to show us how truly and literally He was our substitute. He was made sin. He was made a curse for us. Hell came to Calvary that day. And of course, He does all of this for you. God does not rescue Him so that He might rescue you. Matthew points us to to judgment, but then also to victory. There are two immediate results of Jesus' death, both of which indicate a tremendous victory has taken place. On the one hand, there's access to God. You see in verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, we might know that that the temple was laid out like a series of sort of concentric rooms. And at the very heart of the temple, there was a particular room, a perfect cube called the Holy of Holies. It was the symbolic place where God was. The high priest could only go in there once a year. He, was a, he had a rope tied around him at times during that entry into this room so that if he died while he was in there, his other priests could pull him out. So significant was that place. You could not go into it in anything but in the proper manner. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by a a great curtain, a a curtain that was high and, and, and four inches thick. And you can see the message. God is is not to be trifled with. You you can come near, but but not too near. God cannot easily be approached. A holy God cannot be in the same place as a sinful person. That was the message. And then you see as Jesus dies, the curtain is torn, and you notice that it's torn from top to bottom as if to say, God is doing this. It's torn from heaven to earth. Now you have access to me, God is saying. Now there's a way for sinful people to be with me because my son has died. So there's a victory because access to God has been won. There's a victory also because eternal life has been earned. Matthew goes on, the earth shook and the rocks split. 
the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Matthew's the only one of the gospels to record this. There's, there's an earthquake which opens some of the above ground tombs that there were at Jerusalem. Some of the old righteous saints came to life. There's a lot of a, a discussion about this where these people temporarily revived like Lazarus, and then presumably they died again? Or, or did they receive their resurrection bodies and then at some point just be translated to heaven? We're not sure. But the point is that, that when Jesus dies, death is reversed. You see, death has been conquered. This enemy has been beaten. And this representative number of saints are raised to life to prove this and to show as a sort of a first installment what will happen to all who know the Lord, that death will not be an ultimate victor over us. So, two results then of Jesus' victory, access to God, eternal life. Finally, transformation why does all of this happen? Does it, does it do anything? And of course, the answer is yes. Everything changes. The way to God is open. Eternal life is available. But also, people are transformed. Now, as the good news of Jesus' death, and we'll see resurrection rolls out, we see what happens in life after life through, for example, the book of Acts. And we read the letters to the churches that are just full of, of people who who are changed and who are being changed. But Matthew tells us about the, the first of those changed people. And it's a most unlikely individual. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So here's this Roman centurion. Let's think about this man. What's he like? In the first place, he's a Roman, so he's a pagan. He, he, he worships many gods probably. If he had any knowledge of the Jewish faith, it was probably pretty sketchy. He'd probably never read any of the Scriptures. He was not uh, privileged. He was not religious. He was, in addition, a tough man. Centurions were officers, but, but they were officers who had worked their way up through the ranks. And that would mean that they would have seen it all and done it all. And he was on execution duty. This was his particular niche within the army. He would have put dozens, maybe hundreds of people to death. He'd probably been involved in the torture of Jesus beforehand. He'd certainly done nothing to inhibit it. But as he saw Jesus die, and as he heard him cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know what he saw or heard exactly or what he understood, but, but I think Matthew's making it clear that he gets it. He sees who Jesus is. Isn't it interesting? The way to God is open, and the first through the door is, is not a religious leader, not a disciple, not the deserving poor, but a brutal soldier who puts him to death. And why is he first? Because God is demonstrating once and for all that salvation really is by grace. God is saying, as it were, look at what my son has achieved. Look at who it's for. Can there be anyone more undeserving? Anyone look less like a candidate for salvation than this man? man? Sometimes we, we hear, you know, people pray at, at a prayer meeting, Lord, please save so-and-so. It, it just seems as if they are so close to the kingdom. 
You can be sure that nobody was praying for this man like that. He seemed far, far away. Is it the case that some of us think today that the gospel is, is not for us? Not because it's, it's, not, it's not attractive, but it just doesn't seem able to deal with who we are and, and what we've done. Maybe we, we, we feel like we've just gone too far, but, but this centurion shows us that there is nowhere to which the good news of the gospel does not reach. But the gospel is not only for people like that. And Matthew reminds us of that too, because next in the story is Joseph of Arimathea. He was part of the religious elite. He was part of the moral majority. He's a pillar of the community. And he's next on the list. He asks for Jesus' body. He identifies with this man whom his own people had declared to be a blasphemer, whom the Romans had executed as a traitor. It was a really risky thing for him to do. And yet, as he, he comes and he asks and he takes down this body, he gives over this new and valuable tomb. So, you see Matthew saying to us, look at what Jesus has just done. Look at what he has achieved. Who, who can be impacted by this? Well, anyone from the pagan to the religious person, anyone from the Roman uh, working-class soldier to the upper-class politician. Who is the gospel for? It's for everyone. It's for you. The, the door is open no matter what your background might be, no matter what you may have been through. So, here we are at the cross, this pinnacle of everything that that history has been working towards, this peak from which we are living our lives now in the shadow of. And it all happens so that God might build a people. It shows us the awfulness of our sin. We, we, we shouldn't trifle with it. It shows us the greatness of the love of God for us. So, don't stay away from Him rather run to Him. Run to this Jesus who went to the cross and be transformed. Let's pray together.